Uh, let's jump into the scripture. I, I know there's, there's a few other announcements, but I think I'm going to save them for later. Uh, uh, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 10. And we've been in a series called The Storyteller. It's been all about the parables of Jesus and why Jesus told stories when he talked about the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to convey what the culture of heaven or what the kingdom of heaven felt like. And so he used stories to convey this message about the kingdom. Also to reveal truth to those with eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Those with open hearts who would seek out the truth, would discover the truth of the kingdom of God. And also to conceal truth from the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time who would seek to harm Jesus before it was his time to go to the cross. And so Jesus used parables as a tool to help reveal truth to people who desired to have a relationship with Jesus or desired to know the truth about the kingdom of heaven. And today we're going to look at a story that Jesus used to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Now, if you're over 30, you probably remember a show on PBS called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anybody remember this movie? Yeah. I remember even watching this when I was a kid. They were probably reruns at the time. But uh, who knows? I don't know. And, and, and Mr. Roger was an ordained Presbyterian minister uh, who used television to spread the message of love uh, in the country's most pivotal moments. In fact, he was contacted by, uh, after 9-11, PBS wanted him to do a special announcement because he became a voice of America, uh, a voice of, uh, of reason to help parents communicate with their children about tragedy and about things that happen. And, and every episode began with a song where he asked the question, won't you be my neighbor? And and it was an invitation. In fact, I just Hollywood just did a, a movie about Mr. Roger. They also just did a documentary, and I watched the documentary this last week, you know, because I had to prepare for this sermon, right? And so I watched this documentary, and I loved how Mr. Roger said, I, I wanted it to be an invitation for people to come close. That's, what I, that's why I said it every episode, won't you be my neighbor? It was intentional. It was an invitation to bring people close no matter what. And in fact, he said in this documentary, he says, and this is a quote from Mr. Rogers, he said, Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all parenting, all relationships are formed by love or the lack of it. Now, as much as we want to credit Mr. Roger with this, this is an idea that came from Jesus long before Mr. Roger's. That, that we are to love our neighbors. In fact, if you don't know anything about Jesus and you don't know anything about the Bible, you are familiar with the golden rule that you are supposed to do to others what you would want them to do to you, right? And if you're not even a believer, if you don't believe in the Bible, this is a good thing to live by, isn't it? It's a good rule to live by, but Jesus takes it farther in this story that we're going to read about. And not only does he talk about loving people that are like you or loving people that are easy to love, like your children or your friends or people who are in the same socioeconomic class as you, who look like you, who have kids the same age as you. But Jesus goes even further and, and talks about who is my neighbor. Mr. Rogers was deeply influenced by the Bible as an ordained Presbyterian minister. And so today we're going to read a story about what it means to be a neighbor. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 29. Let me get there with you. Is everybody else there? I'm reading from the NIV today. I typically read from the NIV. All right. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Let's stop there. So Jesus is approached by this expert in the law. And, and this is, uh, the law was the first five books of the Bible. It was the Torah. So this is an expert in the Bible. He's an expert in the Torah, in the law of Moses. And so he approaches Jesus with ill intentions. He wants to test Jesus to see who is this guy? What is he teaching? What does he know about the law? And so he asks him, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus right here, uses the Socratic method, and he turns it on himself and says, well, you tell me, what does the law say? What does the, what does the Torah say? And this man proceeds to recite the Shema. Now, even practicing Jews today still recite the Shema twice daily, and the Shema is, is uh, it comes from three different texts within Scripture, and it's even practiced today by Jews. But it also functioned, the Shema also functioned as a pledge of allegiance and also as a hymn of praise. And it was a very important thing that, that Jews memorized and that they grew up knowing. And Jesus, after he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is very good. You ace the test. Good job. How, much you, how many of you would like to hear that from Jesus? Hey, you got the answer right. Right on. I got the answer right. Jesus said so. Well, Jesus tells him that he's correct. And in Matthew 20, 22, Jesus actually says that all of the law and all of the prophets can be summarized with these two commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know that it is impossible to have one without the other? Jesus told Peter, if you love me, then what? Then you'll feed my sheep. Then take care of of the people that God has placed in your life. He also says in John 14, 15, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. You will do what I tell you to do, right? You will follow the law. It's impossible to fully love God unless you keep his command to fully love others. It's also impossible to fully love others without fully loving God first. Because unconditional love for others is a supernatural gift that comes from God. Now, I recently got into an argument with somebody who's, who's not a believer. And they're on the fence about church, and they don't know what to think about Jesus. And they were upset with me that I would say that all good and morality, good things come from God. They're all, you know, because they would say, well, I'm not a believer. I don't, I don't go to church. I don't believe in Jesus, but I'm still a good person. I still make good decisions. I still good, do good things. And I would say, well, all of that goodness... All of that, the, the things that you think are good that you would want to do for others, it all comes from the fact that you have been made in the image of God. That God has placed something inside of you that looks like him and no matter how far away you wander from God, you still are an image bearer and you still have been given a conscience to know what is right and what's wrong. Now that conscience, our conscience, it, it fluctuates apart from the word of God. What becomes right, what becomes good, what becomes true, uh, it turns into something else along the way if we don't have a foundation of truth to rest it upon, a foundation of truth to bring it back to. But Jesus is saying that all of the law and all of the prophets, all of the commands of Scripture can be boiled down to love God and love people. 
Love God and love people. And oftentimes, maybe we get one of these things really right and the other thing really wrong. Either you go to church for your entire life and you get really good at what you feel like is loving God by worshiping and doing good things and you feel good, you pat yourself on the back. But then when it comes down to it and when the rubber meets the road, Thanksgiving is coming up and we're about to spend some of us Thanksgiving with members of the family that we don't quite get along with that have different political opinions than us. And so how many of you have the rule that around Thanksgiving you do not talk about politics? Don't bring it up. Unless you want to cut the event short. Just don't talk about it. When the rubber meets the road, it's really hard to love people who think differently than us. And Jesus is inviting us into a new reality of his kingdom. We have this this reality, and and the Jews were taught this, that that, that, uh, the law was to love your neighbor as yourself. And the law actually said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, it didn't say hatred. That was, that was something that the Pharisees came and they twisted. But the law was to love your neighbor. And Jesus says, now I'm going to redefine for you, according to the kingdom, what it means to be a neighbor and who your neighbor is. And so you see that this expert in the law, he, he wants to justify himself. I love that we have this commentary because here's a guy who's just honest. Here's a guy that we can all relate to because I want to feel good about the way that I live my life. And when I read something in scripture that's apart from the way that I'm living that I go, oh man, I am not doing so good. I want to justify myself. I want a reason to keep on doing what I'm doing. I want a reason to show compassion to some, but not to others because it's really hard to love some people in life. It's really hard to show compassion to some in life. And so he wants to justify himself and he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I, I don't feel like I need to have compassion on everyone. So why don't you clarify for me? Who, who would you say is my neighbor? Give me a reason. Give me an excuse to justify how I've been living my life. And Jesus proceeds to tell the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, if you're a listener, you're thinking, hey, okay, somebody's coming to help him. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, 
uh, to, to better understand the gravity of the story that Jesus just told, we need to read this story from the point of view of the listeners that were there in front of Jesus. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile-long stretch of road that was notorious for criminal activity. It was a bad road. It was, a, it was, it was, it was in this canyon, and it was a place where, where people would wait to ambush others, and so many bandits waited on the road for victims to come into this place. And so Jesus is using a familiar familiar piece of territory to describe. It would be like Jesus using uh, kind of like a a downtown uh, New York or down a a place in the inner city that was just known for criminal activity, for gang violence, for gang activity. Jesus uses a physical location that people would have been very familiar with. Then enters two characters that would typically be seen as the good guys, especially to the ones listening to Jesus. He brings in a priest and a Levite. And these two are religious leaders. The, the, these two are people that knew the law, that knew the word of God, that taught the word of God. And so these would have been viewed as the guys to do the right thing. However, Jesus depicts these two as heartless men who pass alongside this dying man without having pity and without, without having compassion on them. Instead, Jesus uses a Samaritan as the protagonist. And this is significant because this would have shocked and even upset many Jewish, Jewish listeners. See, Samaritans were, were half-breed Jews that descended from the Israelites that married Canaanites when they entered the promised land. And so Jews and Samaritans had a contentious relationship and they, they didn't like it. Jews hated Samaritans so much that if they had to get to the other side of Samaria, instead of crossing through Samaria, they would take the long road around. They would add a day or two to their journey just to, just to get out of the way so they didn't have to interact or talk to any Samaritan. We all have Samaritans in our lives. Just like the Jews went out of their way to avoid contact with these people. We all have Samaritans in our life. We all have people that we want to avoid in our life. Each of us can think of a group of people that we tend to cross the street for. I don't know, if, I don't know but I'm going to throw a couple of these out here because Jesus used a touchy subject. Jesus used something very, um, very, very sensitive to convey this story. But maybe for you, you cross the street when you see a black person or a Hispanic person or you don't want to, you don't want to associate with those communist Democrats or those Nazi Republicans. Those this or this or that mentality of this, this polarized mentality. Or maybe, maybe you don't want to associate with Mormons or gays and lesbians. Who do you cross the street for? to avoid contact with, to avoid a relationship with, to avoid seeing eye to eye, to avoid feeling that compassion for them, to avoid feeling the, 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 the love that God wants to fill you with for that group of people because God will fill you with compassion for those people if you ask Him for it. If you ask Him to break your heart for a group of people, He will do that for you. Jesus uses this touchy topic to convey His message by praising the kindness of a Samaritan, somebody who everyone hated. And not only does this man show pity to the dying man, he goes above and beyond by mending his wounds, allowing him to ride his donkey, caring for him at the end. Uh, he paid for two months worth of stay at this inn, and he says that he's going to keep the tab open. I'll pay for whatever else you need. 
when I come back. He showed extravagant love to this man he never met. Now, you may be here this morning and you've heard this story and you're thinking, yeah, this is good. This is heartfelt. I'm all for this pastor. I'm all for showing extravagant love to people. But, but when you think of your life and when you think about the people that you interact with, do you have anyone in your life that is difficult to love that you are showing compassion to, that you're showing patience for? It's really easy to say amen to this story, but when you think about it, this, this story is for you this morning. God wants, to, God wants to expand your capacity for compassion and for love. He wants to show you the kingdom way of living because how many of you know that the world is going to come to Jesus when they see a church that is more compassionate than anybody else they know? When they see a church, the church of Jesus, show love to people in a way that nobody else does. That is what's going to attract people to Jesus when they see his children living the way that he's called them to live. So Jesus, I want to I talk about just some kingdom lessons that Jesus is, has, has placed inside of this story. And then I want to talk about uh, how the Holy Spirit is involved in those things. And so uh, I think one kingdom lesson that Jesus is communicating is that this expert of the law comes up to him and, and says, I want you to define for me who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Who should I show compassion for uh, because they're my neighbor? And Jesus turns the question on him and says, no, it's not about who is your neighbor. The question is, will I be a neighbor? Will I be a neighbor to everyone I meet? Because the Samaritan man was a neighbor to the dying man. We don't even know how to be a literal neighbor anymore. I remember a time when I would go to my neighbor's house and I would play as a kid or just go to say hello. And I remember we would go to, and maybe it's different in a small town. Maybe, maybe we still do that here. I'm not sure. I've only been here for a year now. And, and, and I remember going to each other's house and asking to borrow a cup of sugar and we'd have dinner together. And now when the bell rings at my house and my neighbor's at the door, I think, who is disturbing me without giving me a two-hour notice first? I haven't showered. The place is a mess. Like, the kids are napping. I'm, I'm inconvenienced, right? I don't know how to be a neighbor, a literal neighbor to the people around me anymore. Because we live in a culture that is so self-focused, that's so independent, that's so separate from community that I want to show everybody that I can do life without others. I don't need others in my life to be successful. I want people to look at me and say, look where he's at. He started at the bottom. Now he's here. He did it all by himself. We live in this independent culture and we don't know how to be a neighbor. And Jesus wants his followers to become people who are marked by unconditional love for everyone they meet. Have you ever met somebody like that who's just so loving that they just seem like they're, they're plastic? They're just so unreal. I have a friend, he was in my wedding, and his name is Oren. And if, he's, you know, if he ever sees this, I just want to say, I think this about you, man. I think I've told you this. But i got a buddy, his name is Oren. And he's just like, when you're around him, you just feel like a terrible person. Because he is so loving. He's always greeting with a smile. He's always asking you what's going on in your life. How are you doing? And he's genuinely interested. He's not just asking just to make small talk, but he really cares and he's really concerned. And every time I'm around this person, I think you have a relationship with Jesus that I need in my life. 
I need more of this compassion. But people like that are attractive. And they, they bring people, when, when you live like that, this unconditional love, you attract people to Jesus. Because the only reason you're like that is because you hang out with Jesus, right? The only reason you have that kind of grace, that kind of love, is because you've experienced that in the presence of God. And so when you bring, when you live like that, you attract people to yourself and in turn attract people to Jesus. Jesus says, number one, to be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. The second thing that we know in Scripture is that this kind of love began with Jesus. This kind of love began with Jesus. He went first. He showed us the way. He showed us what it looks like. He led by example. He washed his disciples' feet. He forgave Peter after Peter betrayed him. He died on the cross even for people he knew wouldn't love him in return. Jesus was a servant leader that constantly modeled for us what true love and compassion looks like. In John 13, after Jesus gets done washing his disciples' feet, in John 13, 14 through 17, he says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you. Uh, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, I am going to go first. I went first. I showed you how to love unconditionally. I showed you how to have compassion on all people. And who's to say that they're greater than I am? The creator of heaven and earth, the God of, of everything, the God of the universe, who put the stars in place. He came down and he washed the filthy feet of fishermen. He died a criminal's death on a cross. The God of the universe did this. And when we get to our place in life, when we go to Thanksgiving dinner, and we look that person in the eye, and they start bringing up politics, we just need to remember the God of the universe washed feet so I can love this person unconditionally. Jesus went first. Love began with him. He said, if I can do it, you can do it too. But we often attempt to justify ourselves just like the lawyer did with things like, if only you knew what this person did to me. If only, God, if only you know what's going on in their head. Or, I'm in the world, but not of the world, so I'm trying to keep myself clean from associating with others who are sinners. We justify ourselves. I'm I'm in the world, but not of the world. So I'm going to just hang out with my church people because they're the ones who are polished and clean and they're going to make me a better person. So I'm just not going to hang out with those people because I don't want to, you know, get that stuff on me. I don't want to become like the world. I'm afraid if I hang out with those people, it's going to get on me. Or this is my least favorite one. Jesus was God. Of course he could do that, but I'm only human. I'm only human. You got to cut me some slack, right? I can't do this perfectly. I'm, I'm just a human. Did you know that, that when God created humanity, he created humans to be in his likeness, in his image? To, to, so to show love and compassion to people is actually to look more and more like a real human. To look more and more like the image of God. And the less and less compassion and love you show to people, the less and less human you become. And the more animal 
and, and driven by fleshly carnal desires you become. See, I'm only human doesn't work. Because if you were only human, you would look a lot more like God. God created humanity to look like him in his image. We were made to reflect the image of God. So embrace your humanity by viewing others as being made in God's image as well. And the last thing, the last reality of the kingdom that, that, that Jesus, I think, wants to convey is this, is that you have the capacity to love like Jesus through the Holy Spirit and only through the Holy Spirit. You don't have the capacity to love apart from God's presence. Apart from being born again, being born of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, when you ask Jesus to take over your life, when you ask Jesus to, to fill your heart, you are regenerated. You're, giving a new, you're given a new nature and the Holy Spirit gives you the capacity, the ability, the desire to want to love others the way that God loves them, but you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Apart from God, we are selfish. We're prideful. We want what pleases us and we don't care about other people, but with God's power, we have the capacity to love people unconditionally. Just like the Samaritan tended to the wounds of the dying man and cared for him, the Holy Spirit wants to bring healing to your life so that you can heal others. So as for the remainder of our time, I just want to talk about four things that the Holy Spirit will help you do. If you've said yes to Jesus, and maybe you're like me, you can identify people in your life that are hard to love. They are hard to love. The Holy Spirit wants to come alongside of you and show you how to love better, to show you how to have greater compassion. So the Holy Spirit will help you to do these things. Number one, the Holy Spirit will help you to heal from past wounds. The Holy Spirit will help you to heal from past wounds. It's impossible to love others unconditionally when you're hurting. If we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we have to make sure we find healing because hurting people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. It's just the natural effect. When you're hurting and when there's wounds in your heart, the person that hurts you, it's hard to love them because you haven't found healing. You haven't recovered from that brokenness, from that heart that was crushed or from those things that they said or did to you. The Holy Spirit wants to help you heal from past wounds. Hurts don't have to harden you. You can become better because of them. It's okay to let yourself feel the hurt deeply instead of toughening up. Often what we do when we get hurt, we say, I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm never going to let that person close enough to hurt me again. And we put up this wall and this barrier. We become more callous and we become harder to relate to, harder to, to, to truly get to know because we put on this exterior. We, we, we allow the pain of our life to toughen us up and we develop this rhino skin. But I can allow God to give me a new perspective, a perspective of empathy because I understand what a particular pain feels like. There's always someone else who's going through what I've already gone through and this is a big way I can love my neighbors to help them get through the pains of life. But I must shed my hardened shell first and allow the Holy Spirit to heal me of my wounds. And it starts with sharing with others about your pain. That's the beginning of the process. Vulnerability 
or the risk of hurting myself again is being real with them. And hopefully, the people that you surround yourself with will see that I'm genuinely there for them. See, vulnerability and risking it all once again, after you've been hurt, vulnerability and risking it all is so difficult. It's so difficult. And you know what? I I want you to hear me, church, that sometimes when you're hurt, there are boundaries that you have to set for yourself. That there are people in your life that you just can't trust right away. They haven't, they've done something that was just, that was horrible. And so, so forgiveness is different than fully trusting them again. But we forgive them. We heal. We can have healthy boundaries, but we still are called to love them unconditionally. And figuring out what that looks like may be different for every single one of us, depending on the kind of hurt that we've experienced. But the Holy Spirit wants to come alongside you and help you to heal from your wounds in order so that you can better love people unconditionally. We have to find healing first. Second is this. The Holy Spirit will help you to forgive even when they don't ask for it. The Holy Spirit wants to help you to forgive. How do you love everyone when there's unforgiveness in your heart? The answer is that you can't. You can't love everyone when there's unforgiveness in your heart. Waiting for someone to apologize and harboring unforgiveness will only make you sick and keep you stuck. Somebody would said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It just won't happen. But unforgiveness is often the only thing that we have left. They've hurt me so bad that it's the only control I have in this relationship. That if I hold on to this unforgiveness, if I I refuse to forgive them, then I'm keeping some form of control. That's the perception, but it's a lie. You never had control over the relationship in the first place. And so when you let go, our thought is if I release this, then I'm justifying what they did to me. And I'm, 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 letting them, I'm letting them off the hook. I don't want to let them off the hook. I want them to get what's coming to them. But what does the Bible say? Who's the judge? He's the judge. He is going to make sure that it's right. And you can trust in his goodness that he is going to bring He's going to bring his righteousness to the situation. He's going to make sure that everything is taken care of. And so we need to let go of unforgiveness so that I can become a person who truly loves, who truly is vulnerable. I want people to look in my life and I want to be okay with them seeing my brokenness and with them seeing my pain. And I want people to understand that it's a part of my life. It's a part of who I am. It's what, it's what brought me here. It's what made me is that the brokenness and the pain and the betrayal and the things that have happened to me in my life have shaped me and molded me. And because I gave it back to God, he redeemed all of those things and now can use my life for a greater purpose. Forgive even when they don't ask. The third thing that the Holy Spirit wants to help you to do is to shed self-centeredness. Shed self-centeredness. Like I mentioned before, we live in this culture of independence and this, this culture of, of I'm going to do it on my own. And we value people who, who our culture values people who, who say that they don't need anybody else, that they can take care of it. People live their, their Christian life this way. It's why some people don't come to church is they think I don't need anybody else to have a relationship with God. 
I don't need anybody else to make me a better person. But we were never meant to do life alone. We were always meant to be in community. That's why in the very beginning, before the world was even created, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was a relationship, a community happening before time even began. Community, togetherness, was God's design all along. I was just talking to a friend who came over a couple nights ago for dinner, and he's from El Salvador, and we were described. I asked him, I said, uh, what's Christmas like in El Salvador? Do you guys have some of the same traditions? Do you, does it look completely different? He goes, oh, man. He goes, it, when I came to America, it was sad. I said, what do you mean? He goes, in El Salvador, everybody opens up their homes, and it's this big party on Christmas, and everybody makes food, and you can go to anybody's house and just sit down for as long as you want and have dinner there and then move on to the next house, and there's singing, and there's dancing, and everybody's together all the time. The whole village, the whole community is together for the entire day of Christmas. And I came to America, and everybody's just closed into their houses by themselves, and it's it's dark and it's lonely. He said, I just got sad when I came to America for Christmas. Because that's the culture we have in America. It's independent. It's my family, right? Like, you go, you go celebrate with your family, I'll celebrate with my family, and we'll just, we'll just stay apart, you know? And, and we, we, we value this independence. But it creates this self-centeredness. It creates this selfishness in our life where we, we're not others-focused. We don't... We don't look at the needs of others. We think of what do I need to make this holiday season really good for myself? What do I need to make my life good for myself? But we need to shed self-centeredness. In order to truly love others and do good for them, we must put ourselves in their shoes. When I'm thinking about myself and what I need to do, I often don't notice what others around me are really going through. And life can get busy, but I need to force myself to look around. There's usually more opportunities to help others if I'd only take the time to really see them and see their needs. 1 Corinthians 10 24 says that no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Togetherness, community, others focus. Love, this is the design of creation. God told Adam in the very beginning, and it's not good that you're alone. You were made for community. You were made for connection. Working hard to accomplish a goal is sometimes good. It can even be godly. But, but the best goals incorporate helping others into them. A person can study hard in medical school in order to create a lifestyle that they want, in order to earn the salary that they want, right? To get the position that they want. Or they can study hard in medical school in order to cure the patients of their ailments, right? It's the motivation that helps shape people and makes them a better person. But see, there, there's two big temptations when I, uh, we, we have this, we, we live in a society of comparison. We want to compare our lives to others' lives. And, and we keep, how good we're doing is based on how good other people are doing. How successful I am is going to be founded on how successful the others around me are. And we keep this, this unsaid scale. Where am I on the continuum? Where am I at on the measuring stick? And there's two big temptations when I compare to myself to other people. One is to think that I am better than them. That I have more experience. I have more resources. I have more knowledge. I know more about the Bible. I've been a Christian longer. I am better than that person. 
And the other temptation is to think that I'm not as good as them. I'll never have what it takes. I've waited too long in my life that I see this successful young person and I want that, but I've just waited too long. I wasted my life. And so I'll never be as good as that person. And see, neither of those things is helpful. We need to fight the comparison trap. When I compare, I see other people through my filter. And so therefore, I'm actually thinking not of them. I'm thinking of myself. In the comparison trap, that's what we do. We look at other people through our own filter, how they make me feel and how their lives affect my life, but we're really only looking at ourselves. Comparison only wants to keep its eyes on me. I remember this revelation that I had when I was younger, and it's not like I've got it all figured out now after this, right? But this was just one of those things that God did for me. I remember I was, I was 20 years old, and I was in Redding, California, and I had some, you know, some, some Christian friends throwing a Christian party. It wasn't like a, you know, a big blazing party or whatever, you know. But, but my friends were having a party. They were inviting a bunch of people over. And, and there were some cute girls at the party. There were some guys that I, you know, thought were cool and I wanted to be friends with and stuff. And so I, as I'm leaving, I'm having all this anxiety. And I've never experienced this before. But I'm having this anxiety because I'm thinking... Okay, when I walk through the door, I want people to notice me. I want people to accept me. I want people to like me. And I'm having this anxiety just thinking about going to this party with other people. And so I walk out of the door and God says, no, 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 no. You're not going to this party like this. Turn around, go back into your room. And so I turned around. I walked back into my apartment and God just said, lay on the ground and put on some worship music. So I laid on my back and I just, I put on some worship music and I could see in my mind's eye, Jesus coming and he's, he's doing CPR. He's kneeling next to me and he's just performing CPR. He's pumping my heart and he's breathing life into me. He's bringing me back to life. And he says, you know what? I, I, this, this comparison needs to die. The comparison, it needs to die. And I want to bring to life this part of you that truly sees and loves other people. And so I'm, I'm just having this amazing encounter with, in the presence of God. And I got off my back and, and I walked out of that door. And as I went to the party, I was so filled with thoughts of how to make others feel special. How to make others feel important. I, I could care less about what they thought of me after that. I just wanted to, to make people feel like God sees them. He loves them. I wanted people to experience the goodness of God. But when you spend time in the presence of God, he helps to shed yourself of, he helps to shed self-centeredness off of you. The Holy Spirit wants to do that in your life. He wants to take your eyes off of you and put it on to other people. The only people that you should, the only person that you should compare is compare yourself today with yourself yesterday. Am I acting better today than I did yesterday? Not perfect. But better, am I on my way to seeking more and more the presence of God? And if the answer is yes, praise God. If the answer is no, seek guidance from the Holy Spirit. Because we can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. Shedding thoughts of yourself as much as possible and reflecting on who God is will help you on the right track of helping others to be a neighbor. And the last thing is this. The Holy Spirit wants, not only does he want to help you heal from your wounds and to forgive and to shed yourself of self-centeredness. But the Holy Spirit wants you to truly live a life to help others, to live to help others, to make your entire existence all about helping others. We often add this thing as a second thing in life, right? Like my purpose as as a pastor or my purpose in life is to get to the end of my life 
and have a great retirement, to have a bunch of grandkids, to have a wife that we've been married for years and years and years and, and, and then maybe have some stuff, some cool toys. But, you know, and if I help some people along the way, that's going to be awesome. But the Lord says, no, I want to make your entire existence about, about bettering other people. I want to make your life's purpose about making other people come first. That's radical. That's a different way of living life. That's not how I live my life day to day. But the Holy Spirit says, no, I want to make this, I want to make this your life. To give your life to the service of other people. That's what Jesus did. The whole reason he was here was to better the people around him. Was to show unconditional love to everyone that he met. Live your life to help others. You know, we, ha- we have this thing in our culture where we, we um, I really felt like this, I just, this morning when we were praying over this room, I just felt like the word peace was the word of the day. I think that God wants to bring peace to this room, but not only does he want to bring peace to people, but I think he wants to make peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. That we live in this this culture that's learned to praise the loud and the resistant. The ones who stand up for what's right. And let me tell you, there's a holy anger that arises in us when it comes to certain things. And it's good. We're supposed to follow that righteous anger, that holy anger to stand for the, for the people, for the ones with no voice, for stand, to stand for the unborn who don't have a voice and, and don't have a say. We're supposed to stand for things like that. But I think that God wants to emphasize this morning the importance of being a peacemaker. To live a life that is focused on on creating peace with every relationship that you have. That wants peace with every person in your life, regardless of their political position, regardless of their their status, of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what they believe about the Bible and Jesus, regardless of everything— I think God wants to make us a church, a people of peacemakers that have, that want peace with every relationship. Now, the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker is this, is that a peacekeeper avoids confrontation. And they don't want, they don't want confrontation, they want conflict because it just disturbs what's going, the peace that's on the inside. But a peacemaker wants peace with every person above all else to the point where they're going to, if there's a problem that you and I have, a peacemaker is going to say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's reconcile. Is there something that I need to ask for, for forgiveness? Is there something that I did because I want to make peace between the two of us? I want us to have a relationship. I want us to have a good relationship. I want to be able to, to show you love and compassion, but, but I can't do that unless I know what it is I need to apologize for. That's what a peacemaker does. Is they're conscious about the relationships around them. And, and they're conscious when, when there's peace that's been disturbed. And where there's something that needs, to be, that needs to be ironed out in order to make peace again. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. I think he wants to make peacemakers this morning. Peacemakers want true peace. And they model a lifestyle of divine peace from God. And so... I say that to say that as we are learning to be 
a good neighbor, as we're learning to be neighbors to everyone we meet. I think you can follow the Holy Spirit. Each of us who said yes to Jesus have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, and you can tell. You know when there's not a peace there. How many of you have ever walked into a room and you just, you just know, like, something is up? So I feel there's this awkwardness with this person. Maybe you know what it is. Maybe you don't know what it is, but just like something's going on here. We listen to that and we lean into that to say, I want to make peace with people in my life. Can we stand, church? I want to pray, pray with you. Would you put your hand on your heart with me? And this is a moment where I do want you to think of yourself. (laughs) I want you to think about what God wants to do in you. Not, oh man, this is a good message for so-and-so. I'm going to send them this podcast when we're done. (laughs) But this is for you. God wants to make you a peacemaker. He wants to show you how to have unconditional love and compassion for everyone you meet. You can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So let's genuinely ask, God, we want more of your presence in our life to teach us how to be peacemakers, how to be neighbors to those around us. God, if there's, I I pray for healing in this place. If there's people in this room who have been wounded and have been hurt and have been carrying a burden that's disturbed their peace, that's disrupted their life. The enemy has now had this foothold to come in and and bring shame and bring just bad thoughts. Lord, we come against that in the name of Jesus. And we say, Lord, we are forgiven. We are set free because of you. Lord, bring that healing to our life. Help us find our identity in you. Lord, I ask that if there's anybody in this room who who, uh, is hurt and has been waiting for someone to apologize, to ask for forgiveness, Lord, I pray that we would be able to surrender that. I pray that that person today would be able to surrender that to you. Maybe they need to make a phone call or a text or an email and just say, hey, I forgive you. I forgive you. Lord, I pray that you would help us be people who seek peace above all else. Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do only what your Holy Spirit can do. And yeah, we have people in our life that, that uh, Lord, we want you to change them. We want you to change their hearts, but it needs to begin with us. It needs to start with me right now. I just hear the Lord saying, do not forsake your first love. That if you truly want to be shaped by him, you have to remember that, that it all comes from a first love relationship with Jesus. Spending time, do not forget to spend time with him every day in the word. It is vital that the church today is in the word every single day, that spends time in prayer every single day. You need that meeting, even if it's five minutes, you need that face-to-face meeting with Jesus every single day. Yeah, it might take practice, it might take some time to figure out what that looks like for you, but Jesus just wants you to start. He wants you to begin because we're not going to be shaped and molded and our lives aren't going to be changed unless we have that first love relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray for a new grace, for a new passion and a desire to read your word 
ignite a new fire inside of every every single one of us to be closer to you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.